Good morning, Centerway Church, and Happy New Year. We hope you had a really great time over the holidays, and we're super thankful to be gathering with you online this morning. There's nothing better than gathering as a church to start the new year, in my opinion. I'm Meredith, my husband Claude and I are the lead pastors of this incredible church, and I'm just gonna talk through some information to get us started today. Uh, first, we wanna welcome those of you gathered on the Sunday morning live platform, as well as those of you watching or listening later on in the week. We're so glad you're choosing to be with us. Special welcome to our guests out there. We know that there are challenges to sort of visiting us online, uh, but we trust that you still get a sense of who we are and that you feel at home here. We really want your first visit to be as clear and enjoyable as possible, so I'm gonna talk through some information that we trust will help you to know a little bit about what to expect today. And this information is just good for everyone to hear so that we're you know, on the same page. Um, if you're gathered live on Sunday morning, there are tabs right on the online platform that you can share your information with us, you can take next steps, you can find previous messages in this series and other series, you can even share this message if you'd like. And there's also a tab to give, which if you're a guest, no expectation for that, but if you call Centerway Home, it's there and convenient for you to use. Also on the live platform, you can ask questions or request prayer, and one of our hosts will answer you privately in a separate chat. If you're watching or listening to this message later on in the week, you can do many of those things through our website. We love to serve you, love the opportunity to serve you, answer any questions, uh, to hear your feedback, to hear your ideas. And of course, we'd love to pray for you if you need that. For any of those things, just email us at connect at centerwaychurch.com. Our website has uh, information, has resources to help you take next steps no matter where you're at in your spiritual journey. Our team creates devotionals for Monday, Wednesday, and Friday that you can find on our website or more conveniently, you can receive them right to your inbox. Uh, there are images to remind you of what we learned in the message from week to week. And one other thing that I'll note in terms of resources is that if you have kids, there's a message just for them. They learn from the same scripture text that we do, which makes for a great opportunity to discuss uh, the question and to grow together as a family. There are two main places on our website to find those and other resources, and that would be the messages page and the next steps page. Now, here's what to expect for the rest of the gathering today. Nancy will be reading the scripture text for us. Claude is going to be communicating from the Bible, and then I'll wrap up with some ways that you can respond in worship. Immediately after the message, you can join us live on Instagram or Facebook as a way to respond through song. Now, here's Nancy reading the text for us today. Hi, my name is Nancy, and I'll be doing the scripture reading for today. Mark 6, 14 through 29. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. 
For when Herodias's daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Hello, my name is Claude, and my wife Meredith and I are the lead pastors here at Centerway Church. Excited that you have the opportunity to be with us. Um, we're starting a new series today. Uh, the new series is entitled Unnoticed, Unnoticed, and this morning's message is specifically entitled Doubts, Unnoticed Doubts. And uh, you just heard the uh, the second uh, chunk of Mark chapter 6, and that's how we're starting off this series. And um, we're actually starting a new year. I should probably start by saying Happy New Year. Uh, it's unbelievable. We're in 2021, and I think it's only fitting that we're starting the new year with a new series as well. I know that although for some of us, uh, 2020 actually did have some good and even great moments, I'm confident uh, that we can all say that we're ready to move on, that we're ready to move on from 2020. Um, with 2021 comes hope for a new beginning, uh, even though... 2020 was kind of a unique year to say the least uh, with unique challenges. There's nothing unique about a new year beginning with new hopes and new dreams and expectations, goals even. And uh, the reality is that happens every year. Um, even when 2020 started, there was hopes and dreams, ideas of how the year would pan out. And so we begin this year the same way. And uh, ironically, or interestingly enough, it seems like the, the way in which we move into a new year is the same way that we move into any new venture or any new season. And so even uh, sports, we see that over and over again. You start a new year. It's like last year, your team was absolutely terrible. But this year, whew, this year will be different. Um, I'm a Dolphins fan. And so maybe this year might actually be different. But for a long time, uh, that was just something I would say this year would be different only for it not to be. I bring up the dolphins because um, I'm actually uh, reflecting a little bit this morning on um, a football game that I went to. My brother-in-law is a big Bills fan. I have two brother-in-laws. One's a uh, Niners fan and the other one is a Bills fan. And so um, the Bills fan, his name's Tim, he uh, invited me to a Bills game out in Buffalo. And uh, it was before we lived in the Rochester area. And uh, I was excited to go to the stadium. I had never been there before. And we went there and um, they were playing the Raiders. And so it was very eye-opening on a lot of levels. It was a very uh, unique day to say the least. And you could just see uh, the the expectation, the excitement, the buzz in the air. You know, everybody's like, we're gonna win, we're gonna win, they're screaming, and um, it was freezing. So many memories I have associated with that day. But um, there's one moment in particular where everybody's kind of screaming, there's uh, a field goal, and they're gonna kick for a field goal, the Bills are, and everyone's like, you know, going through all their rituals and, you know, 
sports fans can be a little bit superstitious. And so people are doing all kinds of weird things waiting for this ball to be kicked. And so sure enough, the ball goes up and, um, and he misses. And as he misses, you can hear people just screaming like, why God, why? You know, they're like completely intoxicated and they're like crying out to God, you know, this is so unfair. And, um, and so we're just kind of laughing about people's reaction. And there's this one guy to our left. I still remember he's to our left. I don't remember what he looks like, but I remember to our left, just very distinctly screaming, there is no God. There is no God. I mean, Tim just looked at each other like, wow, seriously? Like his whole world was coming unglued. And, uh, and of course, God was to blame. Like the God of heaven, the creator of all, in that moment came down and interfered with a football game because that's what God does. <laughs> Like, we're going to kick a field goal. He's like, no, wide right, because I saith so. It's ridiculous, right? And yet we think stuff like that all the time. Like, we say things all the time. Like, especially in sports, you hear people, you know, thanking God for their victory or proclaiming that God's going to give them the victory as if God roots for one team and against the other. It's just kind of one of those silly things that happens that that we sort of believe and lean into. And ultimately, I think it's because when something goes wrong, we want to blame someone. We want to blame someone. In fact, the question I want to ask you as we move through this morning's text is why do we sometimes blame God when things go wrong? Why do we sometimes blame God when things go wrong? Now, what's interesting about this question is that we all do it as humans. Like, blaming God is not a uniquely Christian thing to do. Whether it's an intoxicated person at a football game or whether it's a Christ follower that is just trying to make sense of something not going the way they want it to go. So you might say, if you're not a Christian, and I realize that there are all different types of people that are tuning in, either watching or listening later. But if if you're not a Christian this morning, you might say, I don't blame God. I don't blame God because I don't believe there is a God. And here's the thing. There's a reason behind that decision that you have not to believe that there is a God. There's a reason behind it. And I want to submit to you that the reason Christians sometimes blame God is the same reason non-Christians conclude there is no God. Let me say that again. The reason Christians sometimes blame God is the same reason that non-Christians conclude that there is no God. The reason is doubt. It's doubt. As humans, we struggle with doubt. We have all type of doubts. We all have doubts. It's part of humanity. And I can easily recall moments of doubt even in my spiritual journey myself. Doubting whether or not God is for me. Doubting that God is good. Sometimes things go wrong, they go bad, and I just wonder, is God even a good God? Seasons of my life that I can look back on, doubting that God even has a plan. Because I'll tell you what, you know, 2020 did not go as planned, in case you're just now catching up. There's just so many things that we can look at the seasons of our life and the things that happen, and we say, oh my gosh, is, is God even at work? And maybe you even struggle with bad things happening bad things happening to you personally, bad things happening in the world. And so you have 
doubts that there is a God. What you're doing is you're blaming. In that moment, you're blaming. You're trying to find a reason to make sense of your one and only life. And so, you know what? Maybe there is no God. If we're honest, we all have doubts. Every single one of us. Let's consider this struggle as we look at today's text. Now, to kind of break it down a little bit, verses uh, 14 through 16 actually deal with the question of who everyone believes Jesus to be. And then verses 17 through 29 are actually a flashback. They're a flashback revealing uh, why, it, why Herod Antipas believed that Jesus was actually John the Baptist resurrected. So in the text, we hear um, Herod referred to as Herod, but it's actually Herod Antipas that we're talking about. Now, we need a little bit of context to kind of understand what's happening here. And I'll tell you right off the bat, it's somewhat disturbing. Okay, so so you can understand the flashback and what is really happening. Herod Antipas is one of the sons of Herod the Great. Okay, so there's Herod the Great, and then he has multiple sons because Herod the Great had actually 10 wives. And so as a result of having 10 wives, he has a whole lot of um, children from different wives. And so therefore, Herod Antipas has half-brothers. All right, tracking? In fact, one of his half-brothers was married, married to a woman named Herodias, and they divorced. All right. Now, Herod Antipas married his half-brother's ex-wife while his brother was still living. And so this was against Levitical law. It's against, it stands against everything that uh, Jewish people lived according to. And so you might even look at the situation, and there's more, don't worry. Um, You might look at the situation and be like, wow, that's so crazy. Like Herod Antipas has a brother who's married to a woman named Herodias. That's so crazy. Like what are the chances that a Herod would be married to someone named Herodias? And then Herod Antipas marries her too. That's so crazy, right? It's so unique and just by chance, right? Well, there is no chance here. Um, Herodias is named Herodias because she's the daughter of one of Antipas's other half-brothers. So let's just review everything that's going on so we can understand context. He, Herodias, see, was Herod Antipas's niece turned sister-in-law, turned wife. Unique situation going on. So you can imagine there's outrage. There's outrage by the people that Herod Antipas governed because he was in charge of governing, governing Jewish people. And so there's this area that is populated by Jewish people that function according to Levitical law. And so here their ruler, their person that's overseeing them is completely violating everything they stand for with incest as well as violation of law regarding marrying a brother's wife while that brother is still alive. The list goes on. People are furious. Now, although everyone in the region is furious and outraged by what's happening, there's only one willing to talk about it. John the Baptist. John the Baptist takes a public stance, just basically unapologetically says, you can't do this. This is not cool. I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're a Herod. Like, this is not all right. And as a result, John's thrown into prison. And he's hated by Herodias. Okay? He's hated by Antipas's new wife and niece. Anyway. In fact, she wants him executed. 
She wants him executed for speaking against her and what it is that she wants to do and what it is that she believes she has freedom to do. And so you might say, well, she's a pretty powerful woman. Why isn't he executed? Well, he's not executed because of what we discover in verse 20. And we're going to spend most of our time right in verse 20. Verse 20 says this. It says, for Herod, meaning Herod Antipas, feared John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Okay, so what we see here and what we know is that Herod Antipas would actually call upon John to come and speak to him, to preach to him. And so as you can only imagine John doesn't agree with the way Herod is living his life. He's not okay with the decisions. And so John is literally preaching against Herod Antipas to his face. And Herod continues to have him come back. I want to hear that John guy again. I'm, I'm really kind of perplexed. And, and the, the, the text a little bit uh, reveals that, John, that Herod was actually fascinated by this man that dared speak against him. It's fascinated by him. It says that he feared John. Now, <laughs> is Herod literally like, I am so afraid of this man. He comes in with chains on and I think he might hurt me. <laughs> no, he wasn't fearful of him in that way. It means that he was actually in awe and wonder of John. The original text implies that there's actual respect that Herod has for John. You see, John wasn't like the other religious leaders of the day. He was different. It actually says that he was righteous and a holy man. So Herod is confused by him. Like you just didn't speak against any Herod in that day. To speak against them was to seal your guaranteed death. And so John is just unapologetically saying, but this is not okay. It's not right. And Herod's like, wow, what's in it for you? And day after day, he realizes there's nothing in it for him. Like he literally is just a person of integrity. He's just a holy man. And it's confusing. In fact, Antipas was greatly perplexed, is what the text says. Greatly perplexed. In the, in the Greek, it means puzzled. In fact, we don't really have a word that accurately translates what it is that Herod is experiencing in this moment, but it's critical to the journey that we have. And so we're going to unpack it a little bit because it's so much more than just puzzled. He wasn't just like, huh, you perplex me. No. What's being communicated here is critical. It means that he was puzzled to the point of indecision. This idea actually carries with it that John caused Herod to have indecision, to be not sure of what to do. It means that John's life and words brought Herod Antipas to a crossroads, to a point of indecision. Get this, because of John's life and preaching, Antipas begins to doubt. He begins to doubt. Let me explain. When I was a kid, we had this thing in, uh, in school called field days. I don't know if they still do it to the degree in which they did it when I was growing up. But uh, one of the things that we had to do as part of the field day is uh, you had to run over and grab a bat and put it on your head and bend over and spin around this bat a certain number of times. And then once you were done, you dropped the bat and you had to run back to your team. Now, 
in general, this is super entertaining. And I'm sure the teachers did it just for their own laugh and enjoyment as they watch kids just fall all over the place. The problem is I have a really bad equilibrium. I had um, tubes put in my ears as a kid and it messed up my equilibrium. If I just turn in a single circle, I will sometimes get a little disoriented. So the idea of doing this is like my worst nightmare come true. I tried everything I could to get out of it. And they're like, no, everybody in your team has to do it. Everybody on your team. I'm like, what? This is going to be terrible. And so sure enough, it's my turn and I'm watching people fall and everybody's laughing and it's all, you know, in good game, good fun. And I, I run over and it's my turn and I don't want to lose. I don't want to let my team down. I grab this bat. I spin around. I can't remember 10 times. It doesn't matter. Honestly, I could have done it once. It would have been the same outcome. I remember I dropped the bat and I look up and I just remember complete, complete confusion. Like the world coming unhinged. I know there are sickos out there. You are probably one of them that just loves that. Like you want to get on a roller coaster because you just love that disoriented feeling, the vertigo or whatever. I don't know what's wrong with you. You can pray for, you know, Jesus to heal that. I'm not sure. But to me, it is horrible. It's my worst nightmare. And so literally, I remember spinning on that bat, looking up and just being like, can I even walk? Can I even walk? If you've ever spun around like that, you know what I'm talking about, that moment where your legs are kind of wobbly and you're putting your hands out. Why? (laughs) Have you ever noticed that? You're in a field or something. There's nothing near you. And yet you're doing this to try to get balance, to try to gain some sense of stability. And in that moment, you're wondering, am I even able to walk right now? Complete confusion. It's a sense of what's being communicated in in this text right here. It's a doubt. It's an undecidedness. It's this sense of off balance. I was completely locked up. You know, there's two types of people in that moment. There's the type of person that stays there until they can regain composure. And then there's the person that just starts running, right? I knew I wasn't going to regain composure. And so I just started running and I just fell hard and stood up and fell hard again. And people were laughing and I just continued to fall until I got close enough to someone where I could tag the next person they could go. And then I just laid there on the ground praying, dear Jesus, don't let me vomit all over the field. But I watched once I regained myself, I watched others as they navigated what it is to do. And it was amazing to me the number of people that just stayed locked up until they could get a sense of balance. They just stayed there. Some are locked up with indecision. What's happening here? What's happening right here? Listen, Herod is losing his balance. He's literally locked up by the words that John is speaking. He's perplexed. He's doubting the path that he's on. As John is articulating the kingdom of God to him, It's literally causing Herod to be like, wait a second, what am I living for? What is it that I'm really pursuing? You see, everything that Herod Antipas did, and and history tells us this very clearly, everything he did was about power. It was a power grab. It was about the pursuit of power. And that power, in some way, bringing him a sense of worth, a sense of belonging, a sense of joy, fulfillment. I don't know ultimately what his goal was, but he pursued power with every ounce of his being. And I can only imagine that in this moment, he's coming unglued because there is this person that has no earthly things that is speaking with such confidence and power and authority that it's literally causing Herod to doubt everything. 
I have a younger sister. Her name's Jenny. She says this thing sometimes. It, it drives me nuts. Like it, I literally laugh about it every time she says it. It's usually when it involves any type of, of question about um, food or where it is that we're going or what it is that we're going to do next. She'll say this exact thing. Um, I do, but I don't. You know what I mean? <laughs> you want another piece of cake? Yeah, I do, but I don't. You know what I mean? <laughs> I just laugh every time. I do, but I don't. She says it very often. And, and every time I say, yes, I do know what you mean. You mean you don't know what you want. That's what you mean. And yet she articulates it as like, I do want something, but I don't want something. She laughs at me and uh, what she's saying ultimately is that she's off balance. That by the question, by the decision, it's throwing her enough to where she's not certain. She doesn't want to commit one way or the other. There's something that she wants and yet she realizes the consequences of that. So she's not sure she wants it. She's off balance. She's doubting herself. I want something, but I don't. We all do this. Maybe we don't articulate it, but we all experience this sense of being off balance. As humans, we know what it is to kind of be locked up, to be caught off balance, to be unsure. We're filled with questions. We're filled with doubt. And get this, if we're really thrown off, we can't make sense of something, well, then we blame God. We blame other people, but we really like to blame God. We start by doubting if God is good. I mean, if, if God is good, then why am I suffering? Why isn't this going my way? Where is God now? God, do you even care? I can go through a list of all these different ways in which we doubt. We doubt. Now, if you're a religious person, you come to the good and the spiritual conclusion, the well-trained answer in this moment of doubt. You say, I can't blame God. I blame myself. <laughs> if you're super spiritual, then you just shoulder it all. This is not God's fault. It's my fault, right? I mean, that's the, the spiritual noble thing to do. Don't blame God. I'm going to blame myself. You know what? I mean, if you just beat yourself up, that'll make Jesus happy, won't it? Just really browbeat yourself. But that's what religion does. It pits faith against doubt. It pits faith against doubt as if they're mutually exclusive things that you either have faith or you doubt. But that's not the case, right? In fact, some would even say, if you have any sense of doubt that God loves you or that there is a God or anything that, that, that equates to any form of questioning, that you actually lack faith. But I want to tell you, that's really poor and dangerous theology. Because what if doubt isn't negative? What if doubt isn't negative? In fact, I want to challenge your thought, maybe to consider that, that doubt is not a negative thing at all. If people say, and I know that there are some of you that are right now super uncomfortable with the idea, like, no, 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 
You can't doubt. Like there is no doubting in church. There's no crying in baseball and there's no doubting in church. Like you just can't do it. Because much like Santa, if we don't believe in Jesus, he loses power. Right? I mean, that's basically what some theological thought patterns to that end, that's what they mean. If you follow it logically to the conclusion that, listen, Jesus wants to do things. God wants to act on your behalf, but you need to have enough belief. Like just conjure up the belief. Suppress the doubt. Suppress the doubt. Believe. You'll give power to Jesus and then it'll come true. All your wildest dreams will come true. What in the world are we talking about? Why is it that we go down that path? I think it's because we think for some reason that God can't handle our doubts. That God can't handle our doubts. That, that doubting in some way is bad. That it, that it makes God angry. But here's the problem. As humans, we doubt. We actually do doubt it. And so I used to think to myself, maybe I'm a bad Christian. Like when I would have questions, when there would be issues in my life and I would be like, wait a second, what about? Wait, if, if, if God is good, then why is this happening? And, and I would ask those questions. People, they would look at me like, bad Christian. <laughs> Stop asking questions. Don't doubt. Problem is, I had a lot of questions. So then I started thinking, am I even a Christian? Maybe it's, maybe it's not that I'm a bad Christian. Maybe it's that I'm not a Christian. You see, poor theology can have a, a lot of ripple effects. It was somewhere around that time of processing that that I, I stumbled along uh, Jude, verse 22. Jude's a one-chapter book in the Bible. And uh, verse 22 actually says this, and it's a command. It's a command. So we pick it up and this verse says, and have mercy on those who doubt. It's a very simple verse. It's a short verse in the book of Jude. In fact, if you've been wanting to read a book of the Bible, Jude's one chapter, you can do it and feel great about yourself. (laughs) Just read that sucker in one day. But verse 22 says, and have mercy on those who doubt. So confusing to me. Have mercy? Like, it doesn't say, and correct those who doubt, or mm, discipline those who doubt. No, have mercy on them. In fact, a man in Mark chapter 9, it's a story that we'll get to eventually. A man in Mark chapter 9 brought so much peace to me, still brings peace to me. I want to share the story briefly. I'm going to skim over it. But a man asks Jesus to heal his son. And Jesus says, essentially, believe. Basically, if you have faith, your son will be healed. Believe. And this man says something that makes me emotional, honestly. And so I'll do my best to read it and not get emotional. But he says, he says this. He's desperate for the healing of his son. And so Jesus says, only believe. And immediately, Scripture says, immediately, Immediate response. The father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Semicolon. Help my unbelief. Immediately the father cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. 
it's a picture of humanity. That in this moment, what he's saying is like, God, I, I want so desperately for the healing of my son. I believe, I believe you can do it. Can you help the one part of me that doesn't believe? Will you help my unbelief? I have doubts. Jesus looks at him and he doesn't say, come back when you get it together. He doesn't look at him and say, well, that's exactly what I'm talking about. You're divided. Have faith. No. Jesus heals his son. Jesus' response to this man's acknowledgement of his own humanity and his own doubts, Jesus responds by healing his son. What? Like if, if you fall in the category that like, listen, you, if you really want God to work on your behalf, then you need to increase your faith. If you just increase your faith, you'll get anything you want. Then this has to really disrupt and shake the foundation of that. Because this man is doubting. He has unbelief. And yet, God works on his behalf. What's happening here? What's actually happening here? A couple of weeks ago, I shared a story about hiking. I, uh, I started to fall on a very steep part of a mountain. And uh, I grabbed uh, a tiny bush with some really strong roots. <laughs> After my first option of a larger tree had failed. I reached out and I grabbed this bush and it saved my life. Or at least saved me from injury at the very least. How much faith did I have in the bush? How much faith? My wife loves it when I assign percentages. And so I want to say my faith ratio was about 35%. <laughs> I want to say 35 to 38. I'm going to give it a window. She's dying inside as I'm doing this. Anyway. I don't know what the percentage of my faith was, but I can say this, it didn't matter. It didn't matter. I had enough faith to reach out and grab for it, and it saved me. Hear this, doubters, humans, hear this. Was it the quality of my faith in the bush, or was it the bush that saved me? Was it the quality of my faith? Did, did I have enough faith in order for its roots to grow strong and stabilize me? Or was it just simply the quality of the bush and that when I reached out, it saved me? You see, if we don't understand that doubts are okay, then we don't understand grace. It's not the quality of your faith, but it's the object of your faith. You'll never have a high enough percentage to be beyond any form of humanity, any form of doubt. But if you're willing to just call upon the name of Jesus, to have enough faith to simply reach out, even if it's 1%, 2%, it's not the quality of your faith, but it's the object of your faith. Who or what is your faith in? What are you reaching for in your time of need? What is it that you reach out to to stabilize you? When you're off balance, when the world seems like it's spinning, when you, when you seem like everything is out of control, what is it that you're reaching for? If you simply say, well, I just, I can't have doubts. I can't have doubts in God. I, 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 won't, I won't doubt him. 
It's going to jack you up. It's going to mess up a lot of what it is that you live for because there's going to be things in this world that you simply do not understand that are beyond our understanding. And so I want to tell you doubts are good. Doubts are good. Why? Because they cause us to question and evaluate what we actually believe and why. The only way you will notice that which is unnoticed is if you take the time to question and evaluate what do we actually believe and why? When the world is coming unglued, what is our foundation? What is it that we can really put our hope in? And why do we place our hope there? Antipas was questioning and evaluating every part of his life. Every part of his life. Verse 21 starts with a powerful word. But. Verse 21 says, but. An opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. Why does it start with but? Because in the midst of Herod being completely perplexed and questioning everything at a crossroads of his life, an opportunity came for who? For Herodias. She was decisive and he was still off balance. He was locked up. He was locked up by indecision and her decisiveness cost him ultimately a decision that he was in the balance of making. Who are you allowing to be decisive about your one and only life? Who are you allowing to be decisive as you're locked up, you're off balance, your world is spinning? Are you allowing someone else to be decisive about your one and only life. John lost his life as a result of this. The story goes on, and as you heard read earlier, he ends up being decapitated. He loses his life, but Herod Antipas lost his soul. He lost his soul. You see, he didn't lose his soul because of the doubting. It's because he didn't Make a decision. In the moment where everything was in the balance, he stayed locked up. What do you reach for? What do you reach for? Ultimately, when he came back to, he reached just for what he's always reached for. Power. The question was made. The challenge was there. I want John's head on a platter. And so now here's the moment. Am I going to display my power in front of all these people? She just called me out. Am I going to come through as a man of my word? Or am I going to make a right decision? In that moment, he defaulted to the thing that he had always defaulted to. He leaned into his power and authority. And sadly, he was sad about it. He called for his death. What decisions are you facing? It's time to to stop blaming. It's time to, to stop being locked up and allowing other people to be decisive for your life. Be decisive about what God is calling you to do. 
It's time to be decisive. As 2021 starts and everybody has all these new year resolutions and new goals and new beginnings that honestly, they'll go away one week, two weeks, three weeks in, right? Gym memberships, if they're open, will go way up and then they'll just die down. The exercise equipment we have in the corner will get dust on it because we make all these proclamations, but, but you can make a decision about your eternity about your one and only life. You can decide today. But how? If you have doubts. There's so many things I'm not sure of. There's so many things that I don't know if, if God's going to work out. You need perspective. You need gospel-centered truth-tellers to perplex you. People to present the truth of who God is. Because I'm not saying be irrational and be chaotic and just be like, you know what? That's right. I've been waiting all this time to make this absurd decision. I'm just going to do it. I'm going to willy nilly do all these things that my flesh is telling me to do. I'm not saying that. I assume you understand what I'm talking about. I'm talking about God whispering something into your soul and into your mind, laying something on your heart. The way Herod Antipas was literally there evaluating every aspect of his life. Do you have a gospel-centered truth-teller perplexing you? You see, the gospel, the gospel truth, and the kingdom of God ultimately went unnoticed by Antipas. He missed it. He couldn't see right before his eyes what it is that God was doing. God was at work in and through John. It was a divine appointment. God loved Herod Antipas enough to, to place John right before him and preach at him day after day, enough to where he was off balance, his heart was broken, he was complexed, he was confused, and it went unnoticed. How about you? In a, in a practical way, in a practical way, how do you take action on this? How is it that we do something with what it is that we that we learned today, I mean, can we gain perspective? Is, is that it? Is it as easy as gaining perspective? How do we gain perspective in seeing that something is the hand of God, noticing the hand of God in the moment? Because there's some of you out there that I know that you're like, listen, I'll be decisive. I just need to know this is a God thing. How do I know that God is at work? I want to tell you one of the ways that you can know God is doing something beyond a gospel-centered truth-teller challenging you in that area is by expressing gratitude for who God is and what he's done. Because here's the deal. The reason why we have doubts is because circumstances are going differently than we expected. And that happens in this world. And so in those moments, are we able to see beyond our circumstances and our situations to understand the character in the person and work of Jesus? Are we consumed by the cares of this world? The only way we can reset our heart and mind is to express gratitude for who God is and what he's done. To, to realize that God is so good. He is so good and loves you so much that he walked through the unfair. That he himself took on the burden of the sin that you and I should bear the consequences of. Jesus was completely innocent. You want to talk about unfair? Because that's one of the places our doubts bring us to. This isn't fair. 
Let's talk about unfair. Jesus was without sin. But then he paid the price for the sin that you and I participate in. There's a consequence with it, and yet Jesus took that consequence. It's unfair, and yet Jesus walked through it. He walked through a death that you and I deserve. And so it's only in the midst of understanding the truth of the gospel that we can start to evaluate who it is that God is and what it is that he's done. Who is this Jesus? The same way that this morning's text starts off, who is this Jesus? How does that change my every life, my every day? You see, grace and goodness can only be seen when we understand what he's done for us. Because he's for us, not against us. And so we have to look beyond our right now and realize that God's for us. The only way we do that is to express gratitude for who he is. And so I have a challenge for you this week. We often talk about the text requiring something of us, but the challenge I want to give you this week is to take time to write out a prayer of gratitude this week. Take time to write out a prayer of gratitude this week. Just sit down and say, okay, God, I'm grateful that you died a death that I deserve. I'm grateful that I woke up in a home with heat. If you woke up in a home with heat, How about this? Here's one that we can all go along with. God, I'm grateful that I woke up this morning. I'm thankful for the air that I have in my lungs. Let's gain some perspective that God is at work, that maybe we don't understand it, but there's so much to be grateful for. And in the moment of being grateful, we can start to notice how God is at work. So let's start 2021 with a perspective of gratitude. Let's not allow who God is to go unnoticed. So as you consider that application and that challenge, there might be some of you this morning that say, well, I was in the category of not sure that I even believe there was a God. How do I express gratitude to one that I'm in beginning relationship with? Maybe for you, the challenge is writing a prayer of gratitude for the price that he paid for your sin and beginning a relationship with him. Maybe it looks like praying a simple prayer, asking Jesus to forgive you of the sin of your life, to realize that he paid the price that you deserve, to ask him to be the Lord and leader of your life. In fact, if you want to understand that decision more, we'd love to have a conversation with you if you're live right now. You can click on request prayer and you'll go into a private chat with one of our hosts. We'd love to just have an ongoing conversation so it's not a moment decision but it can be the beginning of a relationship. If you're listening to this later, you can email us. We'd love to walk alongside you. For others of you that have crossed that line of of faith in the past, maybe for you, I want to challenge you as you take time to write out that prayer is to be decisive about what it is that God's calling you to do as you write out that prayer of gratitude and realize the many blessings and the provision and the way he's met your needs and he's been faithful in the past time and time again, that as you look at that, you just realize, okay, God, what is it that you're calling me to do? My answer is yes. And be decisive about what it is that God's telling you to do. Don't justify, don't delay. Maybe for others of you that already live in that pattern, in that rhythm in your life, I want to challenge you to be a truth teller towards others. 
to be missional in the way that, that God is motivating you as you write that prayer of gratitude that you begin to just consider what does it look like for me to be on mission and to be a gospel-centered truth teller to others. Regardless of who you are, the text requires something from all of us. And so I want to challenge you to take some time to consider what that looks like. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're grateful. We're grateful that even though we don't always notice, you are present and you're at work. We're so thankful for who you are, for what it is that you've done. And so we simply declare ourselves available. As we express gratitude to you, Father, as we begin this new year, we give it to you in advance. We lay it at your feet and we ask your will be done for your glory and our joy, God. We lay it at your feet. We declare ourselves available. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So glad that you were able to be with us this morning. I want to encourage you to, to join us again next week as we continue in our series, Unnoticed. I'm so thankful that we could be together this morning. I'm just here to close out with some instruction on what's next and to encourage you to respond to the message you just heard all throughout the week. Claude challenged us to write out a prayer of gratitude. And what's unique about gratitude is it really spurs us on to worship. So whether it's worshiping through singing or giving or any other number of ways that we get to worship and honor God with our lives, gratitude is really gonna get us there and point us in that direction. Uh, we're about to sing, which is a great way to worship together. But remember, again, there are many ways to worship all throughout the week. If you're not with us live, you can find the songs that we're about to sing on Spotify. Just search Centerway Church and look for our new Unnoticed playlist. You can also look for the video that will be posted on our Facebook page. But for those gathered live on the online platform, we'll see you on Facebook or Instagram in a few minutes.